Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Basic Christian Theology. We are on part three, and it is a two-parter of part three. Please don't be confused. <laughs> we are talking about Christ and the use of Scripture. What do we mean by this? Well, in the previous installment or episode, we talked about how our Lord Jesus gave us the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to be the primary dogmatic authority. The Holy Scriptures, the 66 books of the canon, are the only infallible source of dogma and morals. Nothing else. There are secondary dogmatic authorities, tradition, reason, and nature, and there is a third or tertiary dogmatic authority in personal experiences. But those can only discover and verify and demonstrate the truth of Scripture. They can't add to it or contradict it. It's not binding on somebody if you tell them, ah, oh, but I've found a new moral law that the scriptures don't talk about. Now, this dynamic, though, your Roman Catholic friends and your Eastern Orthodox friends might bring up, wait a moment, how do you get sola scriptura without an infallible interpreter? I mean, you've got to be able to read the scriptures, and somebody has to be able to interpret all of this. So isn't that where an infallible source like the church should come in? Well, let's talk about that. There is a teaching office that God has given us. That's in Ephesians 4.11. He has given some to be teachers. But... Those individuals that are called to teach the word and to teach the truth of scripture, they are a secondary interpretive authority known as the teaching office. Your pastors, your bishops, your theologians, all of that. Their job is, of course, to study the scripture, formulate dogma, and then teach it to us. Every pastor should be able to perform this function, by the way. As 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 tells us that a pastor must be able to teach. And if he can't do theology, he cannot teach. Let me tell you. But all of the teachers in the church, all of your bishops and theologians, are a secondary interpretive authority. The first primary interpretive authority, yes there are two, let me talk about that in a moment. But the very first individual we are going to be looking at as our interpretive authority is going to be our Lord Jesus Christ. Before you get to the teachers in the church, we start with Jesus. We reply first on him well, because he actually is capable of telling people what the scriptures are about and what they mean. St. Mark tells us he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Meaning, Jesus Christ, our Lord, did not have to do the business or work of interpreting because he knew the meaning of the text, and he could just tell it to us. So our Lord Jesus, how he uses the scripture is how we want to use the scripture. And 
what he says the scriptures mean is what they mean. Case closed on that one. Now there is another primary interpretive authority that our Lord Jesus gives us, and that is scripture itself. We're going to address that one next week. The Bible teaches you how to read the Bible. And we'll get into that a little bit today as we talk about how our Lord Jesus interprets scripture. But there's some interesting things we'll get into about genre and all that, again, next week. So it's a matter of common sense. If you are going to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, somebody who worships, trusts, obeys, and believes in Jesus Christ, then he's the first authority on what the scriptures mean. Before you get into a church, before you get into what some bishop said about X, Y, or Z verse in the Bible, we want to look at how he uses it and see whether or not any of those guys, any of those theologians and exegetes are able to match up. Chances are they'll never interpret as well as our Lord Jesus because he just tells us plainly what it means. And speaking of plainly, Let's talk about how our Lord Christ uses the Bible, starting with the plain, literal meaning. That is the supreme rule that we have to follow, going by the plain, literal meaning. Now, it is true, the Bible does contain typology when events and persons in the Old Testament foreshadow Jesus Christ by their lives and activities. And we see with the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22 that the whole event is typological regarding the atonement that our Lord Christ won for us. And St. Paul calls Adam a type of Christ in Romans 5.14. And the Bible also gives us allegories where there's layers of meaning. A real event happens and this means something beyond just the event happening and how you would apply it. What is the significance of that event? An allegory says there is the surface level meaning, the plain meaning, and then there's a deeper meaning and a deeper meaning and then a deeper meaning. <laughs> I believe the traditional four layers of allegory are the plain meaning, then the uh, typological, tropological, and eschatological meaning. I digress. There's no need for us to get into that. The issue with allegory is that it ends up being arbitrary. It ends up being just people's personal opinion, a way for human reason and opinion to sneak in through the back door and tell you, ah, but this is what the scriptures mean and that's what you have to believe. Frankly, if the Bible has typology in it, and if it has allegory in it, it will tell you. Such as St. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 talking about Sarah and Hagar, the free woman and the slave woman. Talking about how we have the gospel and we have the law. You do not want to belong to the law. You want to be dwelling in the gospel. He brings that up as an allegorical aspect to Sarah and Hagar. And I'm sure there are others, but the Bible will tell you where the allegories are. The Bible will tell you where the typologies are. 
It does not require us, and nor does it ask of us, to go around finding typologies and allegories on our own. In fact, again, if we were to do that, we would never know whether Christ himself ever meant what he said. What if there was some secret meaning behind what Jesus says in any verse that means the opposite of what he says plainly? Or what if it undermines it? Oh, sure, the plain meaning is valid, but what we really want to hone in on is X, Y, or Z thing. Origen, formerly a church father, he had a period of orthodoxy and then a period of heresy, uh, God have mercy on his soul. He went nuts with the allegorical method. Absolutely nuts to where he started teaching things that the Bible doesn't teach, started teaching all these crazy things like cycles of uh, damnation and salvation, the pre-existence of souls from eternity past, all sorts of nutso banana stuff because he loved him some allegorical interpretation. But that's just not what Jesus does. When Jesus, our Savior, cites Scripture and applies it to theological and moral ends, he doesn't rely on an allegorical nor on a typological method. Instead, he speaks with authority on what the text says directly. Whenever prophecy is fulfilled in the circumstances surrounding his ministry, he shows how it is fulfilled in a plain manner. If he says something happened, if an event is spoken of in Scripture, our Lord Jesus highlights its historicity, not some symbolic hidden meaning. And that brings me to our next point, that with the way Jesus uses the Scriptures, if Scripture says something happened, it happened, and for a reason. When we talk about Bible stories like creation and the flood and Jonah being swallowed up by a very big fish, all of that, our Lord Christ treats them as historical fact, because they are. These things actually happen, and our Lord Jesus puts his stamp of approval on what the Old Testament says as something that really happened. So he advocates a literal reading of creation in Genesis, that God made mankind male and female in Mark chapter 10. He speaks of the great flood as historical, treats Jonah as being truly being swallowed by a great fish, all of that. If scripture says that something happened, it is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a fanciful tale or something like that. It is history. So must we treat it this way. Or that is how it is. And that helps us to understand some of the applications and basic tenets of theology. For instance, when we talk about the attributes of God, him being omnipotent, where do we see that demonstrated? Well, we see that demonstrated in creation, in Genesis chapter 1, when he speaks the universe into being. But he does not leave a historical fact as just something being said. History has applications. So when he says, for instance, 
that God created them male and female, he says, all right, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, history has meaning here, and he cites God putting Adam and Eve together to show that divorce is generally wrong. And this also follows after what St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that a whole lot of the Old Testament narratives is for our example. There are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We learn a lesson from the sins of Israel in the wilderness. We learn a lesson avoiding the sins of the idolatrous kings, etc. But another thing to note, when we're talking about applying history and talking about the meaning of these events, why it's important that it's there in the scriptures, we're not advocating that we come up with some super special meaning by ourselves. Every time our Lord Jesus applies and teaches concerning the application of historical narratives, he does so with biblical precedent and biblical standards. So with the example of marriage, he says man must not separate husband and wife. Well, this finds its precedent in Malachi 2 verse 16, in which God says that divorce is a great evil that covers a man's garment with violence. So divorce has to be a necessary evil or a calamity in the case of adultery only. That's what our Lord Jesus teaches. So the condemnations also we see from Pharisees and other groups that often comes from their willingness to violate the Ten Commandments with their traditions. So we have to interpret history as presented in Scripture as fact, but apply it in accordance with the standards presented in Scripture. Why? Well, because it is the norming norm. That's how our Lord Jesus presents it. We have standards of theology and behavior. It's not just rules. It's not just facts to be observed casually or anything like that. Instead, what the scripture teaches us about doctrine and morals, that's for us to base our entire life on. Those commandments which are given to the Christian take a more broad role than a minute one. Uh, regarding the fifth commandment, our Lord Jesus explains, and the fifth commandment is, you shall not kill. He says in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So morals learned from the scriptures are expansive. One doesn't restrict the definition of murder solely to killing someone with intent. 
It can come from the heart. Hatred of one's brother can lead to murder. Dehumanizing language like you fool can kill a man in a more figurative light. That command applies to all of it. So Christians do not simply obey the commandments found in the word, namely the Ten Commandments, as we will see later. Instead, we observe them as a core part of our daily lives. And the same can be said about theological or doctrinal positions given in the scriptures. We talked last week about how the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. He says so in John 5.39 and John 14.26 and 15.26. Both Old and New Testaments witness to our Lord, urging us to broadly keep this in mind as we study it, the same way that we have these broad and expansive application of moral standards from Scripture. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, to call himself the Lord of David, he does so with the authority, knowing for a fact that Psalm 110 is about him. The same is said of his application in 118, verses 22 and 23 from the Psalms, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. He cites all of these saying, this is about me. This is foretelling me. The more we get to know our Lord Jesus, the more we can recognize when other scriptures are talking about him and teaching us about him. So today's going to be short. It is a two-parter. We're going to get into more detail about how the scriptures teach us how to interpret them next week. But let's leave with a few brief summarizing theses. One. Christ demonstrates the proper use and understanding of the scriptures. So we have thesis two. Reading the scriptures properly means first and foremost, reading their plain meaning. And that leads us to point three. While there are allegories and types presented in the Bible, we are not to come up with these on our own for the purposes of formulating theology. To do so risks inserting arbitrary human opinion into our theology. And that's not doing Christian theology. That's not discovering Christian theology. Frankly, that's just saying stuff and coming up with rationalizations as to why you think other people should believe it. This is where we get uh, Mary is the queen of heaven to whom you go for all your requests. That's overextension of typology. But we get to point four here. Christ's use of scripture authoritatively shows adherence to the truthfulness of events described in biblical history. In a word, if the Bible says something happened, it happened. Finally, Christ's application of scripture to himself authoritatively shows that the Bible is broadly about Jesus, and so his interpretations on biblical morals include an expansive dedication to his commandments. Now, I know those are a little bit more wordy than the brief theses that we have summarizing these things, but when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, I want everybody that's laity or deacons or pastors being able to capably read the Bible. 
everybody should and that means we want to get into our hermeneutics or the art and science of interpreting scripture to be just laid out there with this firm foundation so begins our discussion on the proper use of scripture the next lesson we're going to continue on the topic by discussing christ's use of what we call systematics and the understanding of genre i.e. how the bible teaches us how to read it can't wait to get into that but that'll have to be next week until then our lord bless you and keep you amen and amen